I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Notice I said Revelation, not Revelations. I was asked recently what were some of the great accomplishments of my life at an event in which I was participating, and I said learning to say Revelation rather than Revelations when reading the last book of the Bible. So we are in Revelation chapter 1. Now nobody's going to ever say Revelations again in this congregation. Excellent. I've accomplished the purpose in telling you that. Uh, We're looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You'll find that on page 1028 if you're using a copy of the church Bible. And again, just briefly before we look at this, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless in a special way the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who has not only breathed out your word, but who breathes it out every time it is read and preached. We thank you that you have promised through the foolishness of the message proclaimed and read in the hearing of your people that you would save those who believe. And so, our God, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word this morning. We pray that you would add your covenantal blessing to the preaching of your word this morning. We pray Our God, that you would give us understanding of your word, that you would give us a love for the scriptures, that you would give us hearts that are humble and meek, that receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. And above all, we pray, our God, that you would reveal to us the living word, your son, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, whom the scriptures declare and proclaim and hold forth to us. We pray that you would draw us to him. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would stand in the midst of of this congregation this morning as the great high priest and king and prophet of your church, and that you would bless the ministry of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And here at the beginning of this last great book in the Bible, and as its title denominates it, the last portion of God's revelation, we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of God endures forever. Well, on one very cold British day, Charles Spurgeon was walking uh, as a teenage boy through the town in which he lived in England, and um, he was discouraged and he was downcast, and, and he was really at an end of himself, wondering how he could be saved. And so he made his way into a little primitive Methodist church. There are no more primitive Methodist churches, and and Spurgeon, uh, he, he remarked that all he knew about the primitive Methodists were that they sang so loud that he would probably have to tolerate that loud singing as he went into this little chapel. And so Spurgeon turns into this little chapel, and as he tells in his autobiography, the minister, the officiating minister, was not there that day. And so he said a tall, lanky man who probably was a shoemaker and who was very stupid, those are Spurgeon's words, got up. Open the scriptures to Isaiah 45, 22, which reads, uh, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. 
Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon said that the man, not knowing what to do, sort of repeated that passage over and over and over with some very uneducated illustrations. He would say, for instance, some of you are looking at this and some of you are looking at that, but you need to look to Jesus and be saved. And at one point, the man looked right at Charles Spurgeon and he said to him, you son, If you do not look to Jesus, you will remain in the same miserable condition in which you are. And the prince of preachers was converted. And he was converted under the simple reading, not even preaching, the simple reading of God's word in that little primitive Methodist church on that cold winter day as a a boy of 15 years old or so. Now, you know, it's interesting when we think about the reading of scripture in corporate worship, it's fallen on hard times. Uh, many churches you could go to today would have little to no reading of scripture. Um, about 150 years ago, it started to fall out of parlance. The churches had a central place, not only for the preaching of the word, not only for the singing of the word, not only for the praying of the word, not only for, for uh, the call to worship from the word and all those other elements that we've looked at, but a central place for the reading of God's word in worship. Uh, It was the common practice throughout church history in in many, many, many epochs for the church to practice what has been called Lectio Continua, reading and exposition of scripture. That is book by book, text by text. Even Charles Spurgeon, who was not known as an expository preacher, one who did not preach consecutive series through books of the Bible, had in his service a time of consecutive reading and annotation on scripture. So that what the history of the church has embraced is the clear teaching of scripture that what should be most central in the worship of God's people is the word of the living God to whom we're coming to worship. Now, I've chosen for us this passage, and you may have thought if you looked ahead, how in the world are we going to go from Revelation 1, 1 through 3 into a sermon on the reading of God's word in worship? Well, very simply, notice verse 3, where uh, the Apostle John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling, uh, these, the, telling those to whom he's writing, those who are um, being persecuted for their witness to Christ there in the first century. He is saying, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy of this book and who understands and who keeps them. Now, what we're going to see this morning is that in these three little verses, there is a wealth of doctrine about the scriptures and the place of the scriptures in the life of the church. Um, Eric Alexander has so well said, the church is not the judge of the scriptures. The scriptures are the judge of the church. And what we're going to see as we look at this this morning is that there is a process by which God wants us to understand that not just what we're looking at in the last book of the Bible, but that all the scriptures have been breathed out from God. They they have their origin in God. They center on the message about Jesus Christ. And there is a promised blessing when they are read among the people of God and they are explained and they are understood and they are believed and they are kept. And so we want to look this morning at three things as we consider this passage. First, we want to consider the origin of Scripture. Secondly, we want to consider the message of Scripture. And then finally, the promised blessing, the origin, the message, 
and the promised blessing. Well, you may not know this, but this book, which is such an enigma to so many, this book that has been at the heart of so much debate in the Christian church, and by the way, it is the book every unbeliever loves the most about the Bible because they can't understand a thing about it. It's interesting. Almost every unbeliever I've ever met is like, I love the book of Revelation. I have no idea what it's saying. That's why they love it. And yet, notice that the word itself, the opening word, is the revelation. Um, the apocalypse. It is, it is the revelation. It is God is revealing. He is not concealing. Every word that God has breathed out is God revealing something about himself. It is deriving from him. It is mysteries that have been kept secret and hidden, as the Apostle Paul will say, from ages and from generations, but now revealed to the saints. It is the full manifestation of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Then notice that John tells us it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, there's something marvelous you might miss in these first couple verses. As we consider the origin of scripture, you know, this is, this is of no small debate uh, throughout church history. Wasn't the Bible written by men? Yes. Yes, it was. But the Bible is also written by God. It is the only book in this world that is breathed out by God and written under the usage of the instrumentality of holy men that were carried along by God. And so you have this divine and human element at work. But ultimately, and notice what John tells us, ultimately, all of God's word derives from God himself. Notice the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, God the Father gave God the Son to give his servants, to give to John, to give to us, to read aloud, to believe, to be saved. There is, there is a process by which God entrusts his revelation to agency in order to entrust that you get it. One of the worst arguments, by the way, against the inspiration of Scripture, and inspiro means to breathe, to breathe out. Uh, we get that idea when we speak of the inspiration of Scripture, that it is God-breathed from uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Apostle Paul says all, all Scripture is, is theonoustos, is God-breathed. It's the only time in any human literature that word is used. It's called a hapex legomena. I know I'm throwing all kinds of big words at you. It's the only time that word shows up in any literature. No Greek classical literature. Theonoustos, God-breathed, because the Bible is the only thing that's God-breathed. And it's not just God-breathed, it is God-breathing. Every time the word of God is read, the written word is read and proclaimed, it is God-breathing his word out. Here, God is breathing on this congregation this morning. When he, when he proclaims from this that he is the author of Scripture, one of the worst arguments, of course, is that argument that unbelievers like to make where they say, well, I think the Bible's kind of like I tell somebody and they tell somebody else and they tell somebody else and down here it's all messed up. Okay. God is the great preserver of history. He is the great preserver of his word. He has entrusted his word first to his son, who is the everlasting God. The son has then entrusted that word to his servants, to faithful ministers. That word is then to be proclaimed faithfully in the scriptures that God has proclaimed for all ages. Um, if, if this is not God's word, then what we're doing here is an enormous waste of time. Let me be the first to tell you, if, if you're not a Christian and you think, well, 
you know, this is a waste of time. You're right. If this isn't God's word, huge waste of time. But if it is God's word, and we know that it is by both its internal witness and also by the witness of God's spirit in our hearts, by the harmony of the parts, by the unity of the message, as our confession says, that the revelation of Jesus Christ is that which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. Now, um, God's word is not meant in the first place to, to sort of scratch an intellectual itch. Um, I think a lot of people especially approach a book like the book of Revelation that way. And um, there have been writers who have said that the book of Revelation is essentially one and the same with you getting your newspaper out and reading current events. No, it's not. Um, Sinclair Ferguson likes to say, Russian tanks were the last thing on the mind of first century Christians being persecuted to whom this letter was given. They were not thinking about Russian tanks or Apache helicopters. I promise you that. They were, they were needing the hope of glory, the hope of Christ. They were needing the strengthening of God's word. They needed God's word. There was a necessity in the midst of their suffering and persecution. There was a necessity for the word of God. You know, um, theologians will talk about the attributes of scripture. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Uh, it sounds weird at first because the scripture is not a person. Um, and yet scripture has attributes. It is necessary. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. And it is clear. Those are the attributes of scripture. God's word comes with all of the necessity. We need God's word. You know, Adam, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, before the fall needed God's word about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could not interpret the tree independent from the special revelation of God about the tree. What the evil one did was he told Adam and convinced Adam of what all men have been doing since and what you and I constantly do by nature is I will interpret the world in which I live independent of the revelation of God. Satan said, oh, no, no, no. God knows that in the day that you eat, you're going to be like him. You're not going to die. The word of God was in the day that you eat, you'll die. In dying, you will die. And every one of us is going to die. Everyone, that's why. You know, I've always thought it was interesting when you ask unbelievers why do people die? They tell you how people die. They can't ever tell you why. And the Bible so clearly tells you why. Why does death spread to all men? Because men rejected the revelation of God at the beginning. And yet God, in his grace and his mercy, continues to give that word. He comes to our first parents and he says to them, I am going to put war between the kingdom of darkness and my kingdom. I am going to separate a people. I am going to send a redeemer who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the unfolding of the Bible is God revealing how he is going to be victorious in this world, how he is going to redeem a people from death, spiritual death, and from eternal destruction, how he's going to unite them to his son, how he's going to build his kingdom, how he's going to be glorified and triumph over all the evil in the world. The rest of the Bible is God revealing from the heart of God, the eternal decrees of God. And here in this last great book of the Bible, it is in a sense a summary of everything that the rest of scripture has been telling us, that God has breathed out his word for his people and he has given it to his son as the mediator in order to reveal to his people all of his glorious mysteries. Now, that makes the Bible so wonderful. Um, I heard Ligon Duncan say recently, you know, we have more copies of scripture now than ever before 
in human history, and people read the Bible less now than ever. I think he's right. Travis and I met a guy out the other day that told us he didn't, he said he believed in something, just not the God of the Bible. Very interesting, which presupposes that the God of the Bible is the true God, because it's the only God he cared about rejecting. Um, (laughs) Why not say all the gods? But he said, I believe in something, just not the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible says that the only place where there's life is on this planet, and we're finding galaxies out there where there could be the possibility of life, and so I can't believe in a God who says there's only life on this planet. And I said to him, that's funny, the Bible actually doesn't say that. So it's clear to me this guy had not read the Bible much, yet God has given us his word. He has given it to us as something necessary. He's given it to us from himself so that we might know the mysteries. You know, that's one of the great things about God's word. God wants to share with his people the everlasting mysteries of his redeeming purposes and grace. God wants you to be in the know about who he is. God wants you to know him. He wants you to know what he's like. He wants you to know who he is and and what he's done. He wants you to know all about who you are. Why would you not want to know about who you are? People that de facto reject scripture say, I do not want to know what I am. They say, I do not want to know who I am or what I am. God wants you to know who you are. He wants you to know who he is. He wants you to know how to be reconciled to him. He wants you to know what what it is to live for him and what it means to to walk in a way worthy of the calling to which he's called you. And he wants you to be filled with all wisdom and knowledge. Don't you want to be wise? Don't we want to be knowledgeable? Don't we want to be what we're supposed to be in an unfallen condition? God says that what is necessary is that we receive his word. Um, The apostle sort of summarizes this when he says in 1 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if I want to become, if I want to flourish, if if I care about human flourishing, I should care about the revelation of God. If I want to be a person that flourishes, I should care about scripture because that's what makes us whole. That's what makes us complete. That's one of the main reasons why we are so uh, insistent that scripture should have a place of primacy in worship. Um, Ligon Duncan went on to say, after lamenting the fact that, that we have more Bibles in our languages today and yet read them less and less more than ever, that's one of the reasons why Christian churches should have so much scripture in them. Because at the end of the day, um, the only scripture that many people are getting is that which they hear on Sunday morning in the worship service. And so if we believe that this is God's word, if we believe that the scriptures have their origin in God, if we believe that they are an active word from God, why would we not want them to be the chief center place and centerpiece in all of Christian worship? But then notice as John unpacks this idea of God's word coming from him through Jesus's mediation to his servants and to the people of God, we see that, that he explains what the message is because it's altogether possible for people to read the scriptures and not to understand the scriptures. This is one of the reasons why when you read those um, great sections in 
books in church history that deal with the reading of scripture. And in our tradition, we have uh, one called the Directory of Public Worship. And uh, it's wonderful. And one of the things that um, is taught in there is that when the scripture is read in the worship service, there should be an explanation that accompanies it. Now, where do they get that idea? Why, why is it not sufficient, on one hand, why is it not sufficient for the Bible to be just read with no exposition? Because it's possible. I could come in here, I could read four chapters of Exodus, I could close the Bible, I could walk silently to the table, we could then administer the sacrament without any words being spoken. By the way, there are high churches that do this. And then, and then all of a sudden... Uh, uh, we, we end the communion, there's no more words, there's really no singing, and we go home. Why is that insufficient? Well, when we look in the scriptures at the place of the reading of God's word in scripture, it is always accompanied by the sense of scripture, the explanation of scripture. We see that very clearly in Exodus 24, where Moses has just come down from the mountain and uh, Israel is there at the foot of the mountain and it's a worship service and God has redeemed them and brought them there. And as Moses comes down, um, we were told that they read the words of the book of the covenant in the hearing of all the people. And the people understood what was said and they said, we will do what God has said. And so there is a real sense in which what is read needs to be explained. We see that more fully in the book of Nehemiah when God is restoring Israel and, and one of the crucial elements in the restoration of his people after the captivity, after they had been chastened by God so severely for the rejection of his word is that Ezra, the priest, comes out and he reads to the people all day long. They stand all day. Wow. All day long they stand and all day he reads every word of the law. And in Nehemiah 8.8 it says, And he gave the sense so that they could understand and then the people repent. Now, Jesus does the exact same thing in that synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. When beginning his public ministry, he goes into the synagogue in his hometown and he opens the scripture to the book of Isaiah and he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up the captives, to set, set the captives free, to proclaim deliverance in the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus says, Today, this is fulfilled in your presence. He is the sense of scripture. And on the road to Emmaus, remember when Jesus is risen and he's walking with the two disciples and, and Luke 24 tells us he opened all the scriptures beginning with uh, Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and he explained to them in all the scriptures all the things concerning himself. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us? when we walked by the way with him and he opened the scriptures to us. So Jesus read the scriptures and he gave the sense of the scriptures. When we uh, had an evening worship service at New Covenant and we suspended it here for a year to accomplish uh, some of our specific purposes, one of the things we do is if I am preaching out of the New Testament, we have a, an Old Testament reading where we read either a chapter or a section. And there are often annotations given. That is a rich place in church history. That is in accord 
with what we see in the scriptures. Um, Here in the book of Revelation, notice that John gives us the content of the revelation. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that of could be from, but since it says God more generally, speaking obviously of the Father in specific, uh, it is the revelation about Jesus Christ. John will actually tell us that in, in chapter 19, in one of the most marvelous verses in the Bible, he says that this is the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. This is the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. Every word of scripture in some way reveals something organically related to the person and the saving work of Jesus Christ. We may not always know how. How in the world does you shall not boil a calf in its mother's milk relate to Jesus? That's in the Bible, by the way. I have a guess. I'll tell you afterwards. Um, we, We are not supposed to make scripture have fanciful interpretations. Um, This is why our directory of worship says that the the reading of the scripture is entrusted to ordained ministers of the gospel. It's why it's not entrusted, the public reading, to just any layperson. Um, It doesn't mean that you don't have the right to read God's word independent. Yes, you do absolutely read the Bible extensively, pervasively. But in public worship... God has appointed ministers who should give themselves, as Paul says, to the reading, the exhortation, the doctrine, who study to show themselves approved to be workmen, not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God, giving the right sense of scripture. You know, this week is very interesting. I read, and this doesn't happen often, but it happened for me this week. Um, There is a verse in Matthew chapter 22 that I have missed understood the entirety of my Christian life. And John Piper uh, wrote something about it this week. And, and it intrigued me that he, he, he took the sense of this passage very differently than I've ever read it. So I went and started studying what others in the history of the church have said about this, especially in the Reformed faith. And, and he's right. And that's 15 years into my Christian life, a verse I have prayed many times and yet misunderstood the sense of. What what does the Holy Spirit mean when he breathes these words out? That's why, by the way, in Reformed churches, we have so much teaching accompanying the word, the reading of the law. There is an exposition. Sometimes in the assurance of pardon, there's an exposition. When I planted this church, I remember people saying, man, we sure do do a lot of teaching in this church. That's like 20 sermons. That's, that's not foreign to the history of the church. It's foreign to the history of the church in the last 150 years, but it's not foreign to the history of the Christian church at large. Here we are told that whatever passage of scripture is being read from whatever we are preaching, from whatever we are reading in God's word, we need to know that it's the revelation about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living word. Jesus is the one who said in John chapter 5 to the Pharisees, And by the way, let me drive home the point I just made with this. No one read the scriptures so much as the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that speak of me, and you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And in John chapter 5, Jesus says in no uncertain terms to the Pharisees, who disputed with him, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
Now that's that's a that's quite a claim. Um, if one of you said, you know, I really like that passage of scripture you read this morning, but I really think it's about me. <laughs> I am not sure how I would respond at that hour, but I'm sure it would not be charitable. Um, I'm sure winsome would not be the way we describe the response if you said, I really think that was about me. And yet Jesus, everywhere, said, this is about me. This was about me. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it was glad. Moses wrote about me. Everything written in the law and the Psalms and the prophets are about my sufferings and the glories that would follow. And here at the capstone of all biblical revelation, John tells us that the content of the scripture, whatever is read, whatever is proclaimed, is Jesus. Notice verse 2. John bore witness to the word of God to the testimony of Jesus. You know, um, it matters so much, and there's so many things that matter when we come to read scripture. The genre, you know, this book, for instance. I mean, if if I told you there were animals that had power that talked in this book, and, and you took this as something read literally and historically, you would think I'm crazy. Um, if I told you that the number seven has this symbolic significance to it, and you start to see how many profound multiplications of seven are in this book, and that there's, there is a theological import even to the numbers in the book, you would start to see this as a genre, every book of the Bible. If I told you, though, that the historical narratives of the Gospels were just allegory, you should reject that. Um, the scriptures need to be understood carefully. They need to be understood properly. They need to be understood uh, by way of their genre and by way of their message and by way of their, uh, their, their uh, self-attestation within the message that John is giving in the context of everything else that the Apostle John wrote. And yet at the end of the day, if our exposition of the reading of God's word, if our reading of God's word is not centering on Jesus Christ, then there's something profoundly wrong with our reading of God's word. Sinclair Ferguson says, if in all your reading of scripture, it does not make you want to fall on your knees and worship Jesus, then somewhere along the way, something's gone terribly wrong. If in our reading of scripture, we do not want to fall on our knees and worship Jesus in joy for his mediatorial glory, then somewhere along the way, something has gone terribly wrong. And then thirdly, and what I want to focus on here at the close, is that there is a blessing in the reading of God's word. Notice there in verse 3, John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now I do think, and, and the, the reason I, I think this, I don't think John means, you know, if you today go out to a field or by the marsh by yourself, and you get your Bible out, and you start reading aloud the words of Revelation, there's a special blessing. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's speaking about ministers of the gospel in the context of the gathered assembly. We'll see this played out in chapter 2 and chapter 3 when he gives 
those letters to the angels, the messengers. Martin Luther actually believed they were the elders, the ministers of the church, who were then to declare it to the church, to read the word of God aloud to the church, that there is an entrusting to the ministers of the gospel, the reading of God's word aloud, and that there's a blessing that is accrued in that. Why would we not want to be blessed by God? And if we want to be blessed by God, why would we not have God's word central in our worship? Because at the end of the day, Anything that I can construe as a pastor, any sermon that I can craft and package as a pastor is meaningless and will do nothing for your heart if God doesn't change you through the ministry of his word. If he doesn't send his spirit to accompany the scriptures, everything else is in vain. Now, I like to sometimes say that in broader evangelicalism, there's sort of a retreatism mentality where we're looking for the next retreat, the next conference, the next sort of spiritual steroid shot to make me feel like, okay, I'm alive spiritually. And yet God has said the way to feel alive spiritually and the way to be alive spiritually, the way to receive the spiritual blessings of God is to put yourself regularly under the ministry of the reading and the preaching of the word to be submerged in scripture Now, I have witnessed over the years as a pastor, um, when people come into the congregation, they're not used to this kind of service. They're not used to so much teaching and preaching. They're generally somewhere in the congregation looking at me like this. And uh, just a reminder, I see most expressions, um, if I don't tell you that enough. And, And then they come for a couple months, and then something happens, and I see that there's life and joy under the ministry of the word. And I know what happens. At some point, God has caused his blessings to accrue and to rest on that person in such a way that they've understood the wonder and the joy and the glory of the efficacy of God's word working in them. God's speaking to the depths of their souls. You know, the writer of Hebrews says this, doesn't he? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces, listen to this, even to the division of joint and marrow, And soul and spirit, you couldn't even find that if you were the most accredited doctor in the world. The division of soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word pushes itself into the crevices of the marrow of your bones. Don't ask me how that works scientifically. That's what scripture does. It goes to the division of soul and spirit. It reaches the inner depths of the heart, places you don't even know exist within you, in your spirit. God's word speaks to when God blesses it. Blessed are those, notice this, he says, who read aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear. Now that word hear means understand. Again, nothing works ex opere operato. The scripture doesn't work that way. Um, It's not a lucky charm. It's not... It's not sort of a mantra that somebody writes on the gym to give you a good pep talk for your workout. That's not how the scriptures work. There has to be understanding, spiritual understanding. The Holy Spirit comes and he illuminates and he works within and he, he opens the eyes of our hearts. You know, one of the most horrific indictments that Jesus ever gave was when he said to the religious teachers in Israel, seeing you do not see. And hearing you do not hear, so that you may not see and you may not hear and your heart may not understand, 
so that you may not turn to me and be healed and forgiven. Um, I know that's not a popular saying of Jesus, but it's in the Bible. That there are people who will hear and never understand. They will see and never perceive. They will be blinded and will not have hearts that understand and turn to Christ so that they can be healed. But for us, notice for us who believe in the Lord Jesus, the veil is lifted, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Whenever the Old Testament is read, he said, even in the first century, the Jews to whom it was given have a veil and they can't see Christ. But whenever one turns to the Lord... As Spurgeon did, look to me, all the ends of the earth can be saved. And he looked to the blood of Jesus and was saved. And when we turn, the veil is lifted and the light of the knowledge of God floods our hearts and minds. And we have an understanding of who Christ is in an experiential way that we never had before. And we come to him because at the end of the day, The end goal of reading the scripture in worship is that you go to Jesus in faith and repentance and that I go to Christ in faith and repentance. And so notice John says, blessed are those that hear the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. Now, when he says keep, he means treasure it. You know, um, that great verse in Psalm 119, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. By the way, if you're wondering if we'll ever read all 178 verses of Psalm 119 at this church, I don't know. But I did hear a fascinating story recently. Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in um, Washington, D.C., was at a conference called the Shepherds Conference last year. And he got up and his talk was on Psalm 119 and he began to read. And like Duncan said, 20 minutes in, to the reading, Ligon was like, man, he's going to read this whole thing. And he said it took him about 15, 20 minutes. He read all 178 verses and then preached for an hour. Now, we should love that story. And we should love all of God's word. And we should love to hear God's word. And we should love to sit under God's word. And we should love to pray for more understanding about God's word. And we should love to hide God's word in our hearts and treasure it and, and live out of it and, and allow it by God's grace to consume us and live in us and meditate on us. You know, James, by the way, at the beginning of James 1, where he has that statement about be doers of the word and not hearers only. And, and um, progressive Christians love to twist the scriptures, by the way. And they kind of give you the sense, yeah, we got to shut the Bible and get doing. But actually what James says is if any of you are hearers of the word and not doers, the remedy is to, this is what he says, he who um, looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's the scripture about Christ, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, he hasn't even gotten to doing yet. So, looks in, abides in, meditates on, And puts into practice by God's grace in union with Christ by virtue of what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection to give us power to live in newness of life. He will be blessed in what he does. It's the same thing John says. Blessed are those that read aloud the words. Blessed are those who hear with understanding. Blessed are those that keep.
Now, I want to ask you this morning, if you could honestly assess yourself like those three siblings were doing two weeks ago. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? The question is, how much do we love being under the ministry of the word? Are you the kind of person that loves? Do you look at church as drudgery? Yeah, I guess I got to get do it, check it off, get it done. Or do you love being under the... Because when we're under the ministry of the word, it is not just the God-breathed word, it is the God-breathing word. God has breathed his word out to us this morning. He breathes his word. Every word that has been read from scripture, God has been breathing out on this congregation his revelation about Jesus so that we might be mature and rooted and grounded and that we might be blessed. Who doesn't want to be blessed? If there is a divine blessing guaranteed by God on the public reading, understanding, believing, keeping, and abiding in of his word, why would we not want all the word we could get? You know, when we are honest with ourselves, the amount of time we spend, and to my shame, online, watching television, out doing other things, and then we complain that we haven't had time to be in the word with our families, you know, shame on us. Shame on me, shame on us that we would ever complain about not having enough time to be in God's word. He gives us a whole day. The Lord's day gives us a whole day that we can just be under the ministry of his word, the reading of his word, the preaching, the singing, the praying of his word, the visible word in the sacrament. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He gives us a whole day of his word where he speaks life and blessing to his people in Jesus. I hope that you will become a person, if you're not already, who loves God's word and who longs to be under even just the reading of his word and who longs to understand it and who longs to see Jesus Christ and who longs to go to the living word whom the written word reveals. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for every word that you have breathed out. We thank you for these words. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that the words you have spoken to us, Lord Jesus, are spirit and they are life. We thank you and pray that you would give life to us. We pray that you would awaken those who might be dead in their sins, that you would heal those who are backslidden by the ministry of your word, that you would bind up the faint-hearted, that you would strengthen the weak, that you would encourage those who are pressing forward, Lord Jesus, in abiding in your word and in keeping it. And so, our God, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes by your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.